hello. Hmm? Lumi Aria? Oh no, they're reciting tonight over at Jeloni's in the Strange Glass. We're not permitted as a prosody. Well, such things are tightly controlled by the Triumvirate, and as you might imagine, we really don't want to attract their attention down here. Hmm? Y yes well, we did actually look into it once. Hired an apostate and tried to rig something up, custom. The thing is, um, as you know, prosodiacal workings feed body and soul, the truth of poetry or the beauty of song. It turns out they also sort of um, shrivel body and soul with the falsehoods inherent in shadow comestibles. We had Diet Coca minus Cola on draft that night and, oh, horrors. So, hey, welcome to the Secret Cellar. What are you drinking tonight? Hello, friends. Welcome back from the holidays. It's so nice to see you here again. Take a look when you can at the night sky. The imminent super blood wolf moon bodes well for the coming year, I think. Episode 10 is about as up my alley as an episode of the Secret Cellar could possibly be, Whiskey, design, writing, international espionage, dogs, and a peon to the deep human need we all share to create, to build empathy amongst each other. Utter, utter delight. In just a moment, you'll get to meet author Matt Gemmel, a gentleman whose insight and wit are as piercing as he is warm and thoughtful. I'll also take you on a little stroll through a project idea I've got simmering. Be in touch. Now, steady yourselves for Vizsla's Call. So, Matt Gemmel, this week I sent you an email in which I mentioned whiskey, but put an E in the middle of that word, quite forgetting who I was speaking to. So, I just wanted to, to start off by apologizing for that. Thank you. I thought I'd be terribly polite and not correct you on that one. You are a gracious human being. Thank you for uh, still, you know, still speaking to me today. <laughs> in fairness, it is, it is correct where you are. It just uh, it, it isn't in Scotland. We we obviously don't use the e here, at least when talking about <laughs> Scotch whiskey. <laughs> well, thank you so much for visiting me here in the secret cellar today. Uh, how how are you today? I'm very well indeed. Uh, it's been uh, a typically cold day here in Edinburgh, but it's, it's at least stayed dry, so that's uh, a bit of a bonus. Uh, that is that is good. We're in northern Arizona, which is uh, in the mountains, unlike the rest of the state. And so I'm actually looking out my window at a bit of leftover snow on some rooftops, and it's possibly going to, in fact, be a white Christmas for us this year, which is always nice when it happens. Yes, that sounds very pretty. Uh, I'm hoping we won't get snow here since it, it tends to just turn into the horrible slushy, gritty stuff. Yeah, it's a fortunate part of the country to be in because we don't get snow often, but when we do, it'll snow and then the sky stays blue and the snow stays on the ground for a while. Mm. So an important question for you today, uh, what, are you, what are you drinking, Matt? Uh, well, being as it's, it's just a little after five o'clock in the evening here in Scotland, so I'm just having a decaf coffee. Very unimaginative. I'd love to be having an alcoholic beverage, but it's a few hours too early for that. You know, it's 10 in the morning here, so I won't talk much about my, my tea. Um, it's tea. I don't know. But what I, what I will tell you about is that being a, a dutiful podcaster, I uh, decided to sit down last night and... Um, dig in a little bit to 
your first novel, which as I mentioned, I purchased the moment it came out and then never started reading. And I'll blame you for the fact that I'm groggy this morning because I intended to read two or three chapters so I could sound intelligent. And I read uh, like 12 chapters. I read it. It was a third of the book. I don't know. It was very, it was very compelling. Uh, But while I was doing that, I poured myself a highball with bourbon and ginger ale and grapefruit bitters, which I have never added to bourbon before. And it was, um, it was delightful. So that's the beverage that's on my mind, if not in my hand at the moment. I see. I, I can't help but feel that my, my first book is not entirely responsible for the bleediness this morning then. You are a wise man. <laughs> they, were, they were a nice compliment to each other. So you are an author and you have just put out a new novel, which we're going to speak about in a moment. But I knew of you first as originally a technology writer, which I followed with great interest because as a user experience designer, I think about technology, but I also think a lot about where technology and humans overlap. And even when you were writing about technological things, it was always very, very human centric, which I always appreciated. That's true. That's true. Uh, sort of human computer interaction uh, and uh, user experience and, and uh, interface design were always very much the the, the, the subject areas I cared about most uh, in technology. I only actually came to technology lit- writing laterally. Um, I was actually a software engineer initially and for a good number of years and then started doing a bit of technology journalism on the side and it was that that reawakened a much older passion for writing and sort of sort of indirectly i suppose led to the big change of careers just a few years ago it's always fascinating how these parts of ourselves connect to each other and open each other up that's really interesting it really is um you 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 find there are so many uh, commonalities and and perhaps parts of your skill set or your passion or parts of previous disciplines that still have a certain utility or applicability even when you're doing something very different. So what was the very first public work that you did? Because I know you were writing for yourself a lot, even when you were younger. Was it was it the development that was the very first kind of public thing you did or were you doing some writing for other people in the middle of that? Uh, in, in terms of writing, um, I've maintained a blog for a, a very long number of years. How many years has it been? So 14 years or so, something like that. <laughs> a, a, a horrifyingly wrong, long time when I when I think back on it. So that, <laughs> there was always a, an a element of writing about what I was doing. Sure. And it was, as you say, largely focused on software development and interface design and all that sort of thing. It was only in the in the the closing sort of three or four years of what I now think of as my previous career that I started uh, writing for other people for publications. I, I wrote for a, a magazine for a, a company called Future Publishing, which is a, a sort of big magazine publishing company in the UK. The magazine was all about iOS apps, uh, and there was a development section, and I had the helm of that for. The entire run, it was, I think it was 32 consecutive months, uh, which wow. felt like a long time. I did <laughs> I did some stuff for The Guardian, uh, for Loop Magazine. I did lots of different things. And as I say, that's what sort of awakened the desire to write about something other than technology. So I actually distinctly remember when I read 
was it maybe five years ago at some point you had posted that kind of line in the sand on your blog where, and I'm paraphrasing with five years retrospect, you said, basically, I am command queuing my IDE today. Uh, you know, if you've been following my writing here for a while and thinking that technology was my primary concern, you haven't really been paying attention, care about humans and stories. And I feel a calling to be like an author with a capital A. And I'm going to stop all public development and technology writing and I'm going to go write a book. And then you kind of calmly walked away and wrote a novel. That's the, that's the, the fast version. I'm sure it was more tumultuous in your own life. What, what brought that about? How did that, how did that decision get made? I think um, it, it, was, it was maybe the combination of two different threads of things. Um, I, I think I'd started to feel less and less of a passion for the actual mechanics of software development, okay. the actual doing the programming. I always loved uh, taking a high-level idea and figuring out how to turn it into a piece of software, the sort of the architecture, the structure. I loved the intellectual challenge. I, I loved the mathematical parts of it, but sitting actually writing the code and debugging and so on and so on and so on. I, I used to love that part as well, but that passion was waning. Mm. And at the same time, I, as, I, as I said, I was doing more and more writing. And it started to occur to me that it was the, the sort of intersection of uh, technology and people and how people feel about things and, and then at a sort of meta level, how one person can reach out with a piece of work, whatever it might be, uh, software or art of some kind, in including writing, whatever it might be, and have an emotional effect on someone else, mm. whether that's to edify them or simply distract them from their life for a little while, which is one of the loftiest mm. goals of art, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and, and both of these things were happening. And at some point, they, they sort of intersected in my, my subconscious, I suppose. Mm. And I just sort of said, you know what, it's time for me to actually try doing this thing that back when I was a teenager, I was absolutely certain I would be doing my entire life writing stories. <laughs> so I... I thought long and hard about it. Um, if long and hard is sort of what well, I'm pretty sure it was three or four months. Yeah. Obviously, I had a, a, several conversations with my wife and I decided to just commit to it completely and go for it. And I haven't, I haven't looked back since. There have been, there have been doubts um, just along the way, but never that it was the right thing for me to do. And I, I've, I've never doubted that leaving behind software development was the right thing for me. I don't regret that at all. Hmm. That was one of my questions with years of being able to think back on it now, just how you're feeling. So I'm I'm happy to hear that it is a, a thing you've settled into well and that, that suits you. That's good. I also should say that I don't regret a single second of my career as a software engineer. I absolutely loved it. Um, I'm still fascinated by technology. Uh, indeed, technology tends to always thread itself in some capacity into the stories I write as well. Mm -hmm. I'm just not someone that's meant to be writing software at this stage, but it was a fantastic part of my life nonetheless. You know, I can I can relate. You know, the work I do now is professionally and formally is user experience design. I work for a university, and so I'm working with a lot of user research and testing, and also the design of a lot of the software and websites we make. And then in my in my hobby time, I do things related to storytelling. A lot of it having to do with role playing games and kind of that scene. But I spent 
gosh, maybe six years or so in the <laughs> in the early 2000s, doing a lot of Flash development work. Um, so it was a lot of you know action script, and I I came to a very similar place. I really enjoyed doing the user interface aspects of that and and the problem solving and the big con- grappling with the big conceptual stuff. And I enjoyed the coding too to a degree, but. I knew it was never what I was truly tremendous at. <laughs> and there were times where there were just huge expanses of not super gratifying time and kind of frustration before I would get to a breakthrough in whatever I was trying to solve. Exactly. And yeah, things I learned from that period of time absolutely made me into user experience designer later. So it's really nice watching how those things connect. It sounds like we've had a had a had a similar journey in that respect. I I always loved coding the most when I didn't have to do it. You know that way where <laughs> yes, exactly. If, if it's if it's a part of the job you actually have to do, it was it became the least enjoyable part. But when it was a purely optional thing, then that's when I could enjoy it the most. And <laughs> eventually, it occurred to me that that was maybe a significant signal about which part of my life should be the job and which part of my life should maybe become the hobby. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, one thing my mom said to me once, she used to talk about that moment when you would start working on something and you just lose track of time, you know? So that happened last night in the novel, but also at times when you're working and you sit down and you're just not aware the clock is going and suddenly, you know, it is four hours have passed and you've been doing whatever it is you're doing and time has gone. And she she really sort of admonished me as a young man to like find what those things were and <laughs> make make structure and space for those in my life. Yeah, that idea of flow where you you disappear into the task. Uh, it sounds like your uh, mother uh, gives very wise advice indeed. I mean, not everyone has the luxury of being able to pursue that thing even when they do find it, of course. Most people just have to fit it into their life as, as best they can and, and hope that an opportunity will present itself to expand that in the future. So uh, those of us who are, are fortunate enough to have a substantial portion of their life devoted to that uh, should always, I think, remain aware of the fact that it is a, a, a great piece of good fortune. Yeah, I really appreciate that gratitude. It's, it's not always something that you can have at all or sometimes in seasons. It's all about kind of fighting for the smallest moments of that. <laughs> you know, the rest of life is happening. And if you can take five minutes to put your toes in the sand, whatever it is, you know, it's it's at the same time, I think, a deeply needed human thing and then also a luxury. So it's hard to, to struggle sometimes to to balance that. That's true. That's very true. So tell me a little bit about you have two books so far in this Kestrel series. If you want to just talk a little bit uh, about what those books are as a whole, and then we can talk a little bit about kind of the, the relationship between the old one and the new one and where you're headed next. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so as you said, the, the series is called Kestrel. They are sort of action techno thrillers, but with the twist that they, all, they always incorporate an element of sort of conspiracy and fringe science. It's a, a sort of subgenre that I've always enjoyed reading, and it's a pretty good idea to try writing the stuff that you will personally enjoy. <laughs> and I also very much wanted to have an an EU focus rather than the perhaps more traditional for the genre North American focus, which is obviously very, very well served with so many wonderful authors. I wanted to focus on places and 
characters and backgrounds and languages uh, that are more familiar to me and have a lot of resonance for me. So these books are firmly set in the EU. We do sometimes stray outside, but we make use of all of the wonderful history and and settings and architectures Mm -hmm. and places and all that sort of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. to try to incorporate a good element of uh, languages and things uh, as well. So, yeah, techno-thrillers, but with a a twist, uh, uh, as I say, fringe science, uh, conspiracy, sometimes edging into the paranormal. Um, The first one in the series, which was out, when was it now? I think it was 2016, June or July. You'd think I would know the exact date, but I don't know. It was was sometime around then. (laughs) Um, It's called Changer. And the second in the series was just out uh, three days ago called Toll, T-O-L-L. So uh, very, very excited about that and indeed relieved that it is finally out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean, I don't want to give any plot spoilers, but, uh, you know, if you're into techno thrillers with some uh, sort of exotic locations and elements of... I don't know, what would I say? Slightly x filesy type stuff, then perhaps you might enjoy them. Excellent. Looking back at the first time you do a public thing, you take some pride in it, but also see like, oh, things I things I could have done better. What have you learned between the first book and the second book now that you are with your second book as of three days ago, a truly established novelist with a line of novels? Well, uh, thanks Thanks for saying that. I think it'll take me some time to believe it myself, but uh, yeah, <laughs> um, I've learned a lot. I mean, it's it's always a frightening thing to release something that you've created because there's a great deal of insecurity and, and so on and so forth. It's particularly so when it's something in the sort of the traditional quote-unquote creative artistic kind of side of things um, because I think culturally there's still this vague sort of shame about storytelling it seems like a childish frivolous thing even though it's absolutely essential for human beings to have their stories before releasing the first one i was very very i was terrified um there's an element of misplaced shame and all that stuff i think every artist and it's a word that i hate using with regard to myself as well uh, feels these things so it was easier the second time. So that's the first thing I learned. It does get easier to release your own stuff out into the world. It helps when people like it and they're looking forward to it, of course. But part of that that sort of preemptive, silly, misplaced cultural shame does go away sure. and you do come to you do get to the point where you accept your identity as a again, quote unquote artist. The other major thing I learned is that novelists tend to be divided into these two categories. Well, I mean, there are many categories, but one particular one is divided into two, whereby they're either what's called pantsers, who just don't really plan it and go for it and just start writing. (laughs) And then there are plotters who spend a great deal of time planning and putting together the plot and outlining and all that kind of thing. And I firmly believed... Uh, when I started writing the first book that I was a pantser and I discovered about halfway through that that is by no means the case. Ah, interesting. And I had a I had a horribly traumatic rewrite uh, after the first draft. The revised <laughs> draft was a, was a nightmare and it, just, it stripped me down to the bone. Yeah. And I learned that whatever else I may or may not be, I am absolutely a plotter. So the second book was extensively outlined right down to the scene level 
took a long time beforehand where you feel like you're not actually doing anything, but you're, what you're actually doing is putting things in place. Uh, and it went so much more smoothly. So I've, I've had that Good. radical creative insight into how I'm able to work. Excellent. You know, it's funny. I was a freelancer for many years just working from home. And <laughs> I think I think this is a common arc for anyone who has worked from home for a while, but I lost one job. And instead of going and looking for another, you know, proper quote unquote job, I decided to make a go of full-time freelance. And for the first few months, I was like, I'm having webcam business meetings with like a suit jacket and pajamas and I'm staying up late and I'm sleeping in. And then over time, yeah, I, I quickly discovered that that's not how I could work. And so it's kind of funny because looking at that stretch of five or six years, by the time I had really kind of established my patterns, I still really appreciated my freedom and the fact that if I wanted to, I could get up and go get coffee in the middle of the afternoon without having to check with anybody. But on the other hand, I had built around myself a much more regular system that kind of optimized for structure and actually getting good work out of myself, which was not at all how I thought it was going to be when I when I first started that. <laughs> oh, I had I had a very similar sort of process of self-discovery in that regard. I um when I was a software engineer, I was a consultant. So I'd I've been working from home for the past how long has it been? It must be almost 10 years now. I've made my career transition during that time so i'm, I'm very much a, a bit of an old hand at working from home and you do indeed go into it thinking i am going to just drift with the wind and work from wherever i like <laughs> and set my own hours and you know within the constraints of being married and actually meet all your your home commitments as well sure. but the, the re reality was absolutely that i desperately need structure in my life yeah. as, as well. I must have structure. And uh, one of the most beneficial things actually during the course of writing the, the second book is that we got a puppy who's now a, a very big dog and he makes absolutely sure that I'm out of bed at seven o'clock in the morning <laughs> and the day Excellent. is very regimented around him. So he's my constant companion. He's, he's, he lies in his bed underneath my desk all day uh, whilst I'm working, but he, he makes absolutely sure that, that I get regular breaks and he's out at a certain time and so on. So he's he's actually kind of like my, my sort of Lovely. writing coach slash manager who keeps me on track. <laughs> That's excellent. What kind of dog is he? He is a big, gorgeous Labradoodle uh, sort of. Oh, uh, he's not not as curly, not as poodly as you would imagine. Um, he actually is. Is that one? I would say this, but he's one of the most attractive dogs I've ever seen. And he's this lovely <laughs> nice. sort of reddish golden color, which is why he is actually also called Whiskey. Uh, also, of course, without an e. <laughs> Wonderful. So here's maybe a personal question. We'll answer as much or little as you want. But in addition to the technology, we're often writing pretty personal kind of human essays just about what it means to be human and how we deal with trauma in our lives and how we grow through that and how we package that all together again. Are you still doing creation in that sense, kind of um, communicating about those things? Does that come through in your novels or does that come through in another form of art right now? Yeah, um, I, I, I've, I've always done quite a bit of that. It's very, it's very cathartic type of writing and it, it actually um, had a role in helping me to adjust to having this new career because it's an extremely exposing thing to write personally about your 
history and of course all the sorts of topics that I wrote about. And if you can write about that stuff and put it out on the web, you kind of feel well, I can I can sure as hell write a story and put it <laughs> out if I'm able to put what is essentially a diary entry out. I also gathered a bunch of that stuff into a collection of short, uh, not short stories, um, uh, personal essays, mm-hmm. uh, and that's uh, out as a little book as well. Um, to answer your question. I, I do still do that less often on the blog, but I have um, a site membership program, a sort of patronage system whereby people sign up as members and uh, there's a monthly fee associated with it. And we have a private chat room and they get all of the books first uh, and for free when they come out. And there's also a weekly letter that goes out on a Monday morning. And it's often a sort of original, very, very short story, but it, it, sometimes it is also one of these essays, sometimes about writing, sometimes about sort of just the lifestyle of being a creative person in general and the challenges we face. And sometimes it is another one of these sort of personal, reflective, how I deal with parts of my own history kind of essays. So I, I do still uh, have the chance to do that sort of writing. I know you said a moment ago that you sort of hate the term artist applied to you, but then at another moment you just said, uh, you know, one of the the highest callings sometimes of art is to give people a moment of escape. And also maybe I'm, I'm paraphrasing and adding words to your mouth now, but also making that connection, that human connection with people. But I know a lot of that writing that you did many years ago now, but um, when I was younger and still kind of forming myself and figuring out who I was as an artist and what I was doing had a great impact on me. So thank you for that. And I'm happy to hear that it's continuing and I am going to take a look at your membership. That's exciting. Well, thank you. I mean, it was one of the most rewarding types of writing as well, because um, I mean, the catharsis was only maybe sort of five or 10% of it. The the other side is that uh, it would generate so much email, so many sort of mm-hmm. personal comments from people and people reaching out and saying, you know, I have been myself dealing with family issues or depression or, or other mental health challenges or whatever it may be. And the it, it seemed almost that reading someone else having written about it, i.e. myself, sort of gave them permission to address it with another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a, that's a profound thing. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a factual essay that does that. that's another thing that f- that fiction can do as well because ultimately fiction is always a lens for real life in one shape or another uh, and it can sort of allow us to think of things that have actually happened in our real life as well as taking us away from that real life for uh, distractions and and i guess some of the best stories can do both of those things at the same time so very broadly what has story meant to you both as a writer, as a reader of other people's work, as a as a technologist and a person who thinks about these things, what's the connection between us as humans and our desire for or need for or connection with storytelling? I think you've already said it with that word uh, connection. Mm-hmm. I think um, many many of the, the the sort of primary purposes and whether intentional or otherwise, many of the sort of primary forms of utility of our stories is uh, perspective and empathy, and both of these are are forms of connection with other people. It's about seeing other possibilities, about envisioning ourselves in different lives than we're actually living, seeing things from other people's positions, 
and just generally constantly trying to reframe the universe that's around us via whatever mechanism, whether it's you know some sort of gritty chase thriller sort of thing, or it's urban fantasy, it's hard science fiction, whatever it happens to be, we need escape from the mundane pressures of our lives, but we we also gain a certain there's a, there's a meta level of storytelling where everything reflects something because it's all been written by a human being who is experiencing something and had some certain history of their own uh, and it all feeds into that. You can't write something without pouring yourself into it. I mean, I, I think in many ways the person that gains most from a story is the person that wrote it because you're, you're flushing some of this stuff out but also filtering it as you do and you end up mm-hmm. making sense of something that you maybe even weren't consciously aware of the shape of. And that comes through to the reader as well. Absolutely. Whether, no matter whether it's, it doesn't need to be literary fiction, it doesn't need to be something seemly, it can be something traditionally seen as frivolous as a, thriller or a romance story or a vampires or whatever it doesn't really matter because there is a certain sort of a universal set of human tales and they are the means by which we make sense of the world mm. either as a lens for what we are experiencing or uh, choosing to see the world in a different way and it's 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 almost a, a sad thing that i think a big chunk of society doesn't understand the the sheer critical necessity of fantasy Mm. one for escapism and and in its own right but also as a way of reframing what we're seeing in our own lives and it really is i really i think it's fundamentally critical like a mental health requirement to have fantasy and fiction and stories and escapism I think it's one of the most basic human needs. There's something really powerful that happens when you have simultaneously that connection where you have experienced something and you, in whatever form, you are writing out of your own lived human experience and you're writing authentically and and honestly. And I can connect to that and then uh, be drawn to it. But then at the same time, the fiction, the fantasy, it allows for that little bit of perspective and removal where I can. I can hold the very real things that are going on maybe at arm's length in a way that if I'm dealing with real things in day-to-day life, (laughs) we don't always have the luxury to do that because they are what needs to be dealt with right now. And so that extra set of framing often allows for processing of very real things one step removed in a way that you can't get when you're looking at it from six inches away. And I think that's it's a virtuous cycle in one creator creating and another being made a better human by interacting with that and then maybe getting back enough energy to go create again and do the same for others. And I think that's truly beautiful. I think so. And I suppose another thing is that um, for the type of people that want to tell stories, it, it's almost a medically necessary act to do so. I mean, I, I know that for myself, I'm one of these people who, and I, I think this this personality type is very common amongst creative people. I will endlessly rehash everything that goes on in my life, every interaction. I'll second guess everything I've said. I'll run alternate scenarios, mm-hmm. even for the silliest little thing. It doesn't need to be a, something I've messed up. I don't need to have embarrassed myself or made a fool of myself, anything at all. I'll constantly run different scenarios. I will see 
a stranger on the street and automatically, you know, invent a life story and extrapolate possible things that have happened, where they've come from, where they're going. And it's this constant, endlessly ever-branching tree of these possibilities. And I can, I, I think it's probably a form of, I don't know, insecurity or maybe a reduced willingness to deal with reality or something. I don't know, but I can channel that as a positive creative force into mm. fiction. And it feels like a relief to do it because I can focus absolutely on a world of my own creation rather than worrying about the one that I'm just sort of being pushed through by the tide, this real one that we're all inhabiting. Mm. Yeah. You know, we have a beautiful two-year-old daughter right now. She's two and a half. Her name is Emma. And uh, we had some other circumstances in our life kind of before she was born conspired to create a series of a couple of years where I had forgotten how necessary that sort of outlet was. And I was just, whatever, I talked myself out of thinking it was important. And yeah, it it did real bad things to me. (laughs) It's just been the last year that I've been making decisive choices to tap into these kinds of questions again. That's that's part of where this podcast came from, was just my need to reconnect with this part of myself and also put myself around other amazing people who are wrestling with these things and touching on these things. And it's been really eye-opening how how much how much more all the rest of life makes sense because I've made space for this frivolous, <laughs> quote unquote frivolous, but necessary aspect of I know what you mean. Um, that's actually another uh, thing that's been so rewarding uh, from my career transition because I've obviously tried to socialize online and in person, but mostly online in circles and uh, sort of creative circles. Not that software development is not creative. I wouldn't say that for a second, but I mean the sort of traditional uh, writing, etc., etc. I've tried to connect with more people in that regard and the one thing you see is that everyone is at some point on this process of transition where they're giving themselves permission to see storytelling or whatever it is they do as a legitimate thing. Yeah. Um, and we all go through this process. We start off thinking, I really, really want to do this, but I'll hesitate to tell people I'm a writer or I'm a whatever and I'll be circumspect about the stuff I write and I'll almost be apologetic you know I'll prefix my genre with oh it's just this Mm. and they gain more confidence and some people will never get to that stage but what I constantly see is people are on the same journey to give themselves permission to think this is a real and valid and important and even vital thing and thankfully I'm sort of getting towards the latter stages of that now but I vividly remember how it felt it felt exactly like when I was in primary school which here that's the the sort of school from age sort of four to maybe sort of 10 or 11 years old and you might have been given an assignment to write a little story and the teacher is, has read them all and she's going to hand them out, but she's going to read someone's out loud and you're absolutely terrified <laughs> that it's going to be your because you're just cringing with embarrassment and you just want to crumble the dust right there on the spot so you don't have to experience this. Um, and that, I mean, that's happened to me a couple of times. Oh. It's one of these horrendously cringy, painful parts of, of school, I think, for everyone. And it feeds into this feeling later in life that it's, it is, as you said, a frivolous thing, and it's just not true. Mm. It has its own absolute legitimacy, uh, far older than 
I guess, most of the much more seemly professions that people have. And it's absolutely necessary for human beings. We need our stories, we need our tales, we need our different imaginative perspectives on the world. And those of us who wish to do so certainly need to be able to tell them every bit as much as others need to be able to listen and to read. Yeah. Well, I think it's wonderful that one aspect of technology in the modern age that we live in is uh, this sort of internet patron funding thing. I've just been kind of poking at your membership site while we've been talking. Uh, do you want to tell folks a bit about where to find more of your work and your patron site and how to get a hold of these novels if they so desire? Absolutely. Yeah. So once again, my name is Matt uh, Gemmel. So that's M-A-T-T-G-E-M-M-E-L-L. -L. So it's two M's and two L's. And uh, my site is just at Matt Gemmel. Dot com. That's all one word. You can find my books pretty much anywhere. You buy uh, ebooks online. The paperbacks are also on Amazon. Just search for Matt Gemmel and you should find uh, Changer and Toll. Uh, there's that essay collection we talked about. It's called Raw Materials. You'll find that on there as well under my name. I'm on all the social media as Matt Gemmel. Twitter is a great place to find me. If you are interested in the sort of patronage and the exclusive weekly story and letter thing again that's at my regular site mattgemmel.com just click membership there and as i say my work's on it's on the kindle it's on kobo it's on barnes and noble apple books as well you should find it all there just search for my name wonderful i will put all of those into the show notes as well for folks who are looking for them thank you so much for your time this morning it's been such a lovely conversation and i'm so excited to uh dig in a little more to what you've been doing and find out what happens next in changer which i'm in the middle of <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you jason thank you so much for the invitation absolutely have a wonderful day matt cheers thank you I really can't say enough about my love for Matt's thinking and writing. If you liked what you heard today, please visit mattgemmel.com best to read some samples of his personal writing. His essay, Raw Materials, is a favorite of mine. Become a member if it suits you, or go seek out a copy of Changer and Toll, the first two novels in his Kestrel series. Tonight's episode is sponsored once again by Gamers Giving. I'm so grateful for their ongoing support of this show, and so proud to support their good work. Gamers Giving is a Denver-area 501c3 charity by gamers for gamers in need. They pool together donations from the gaming community in order to brighten the lives of other gamers who have experienced tragedy. Are you a gamer? Give. Join the Gamers Giving community at facebook.com gamersgiving. Contribute financially if you're in a position to be generous right now. Or, if you'd like to channel your geekery for good, here's a specific request. Create a character for charity. Gamers Giving maintains a library of hundreds of games for folks to play free at conventions. It's a community service and also helps get the word out about their work. As part of this project, Gamers Giving is growing a library of pre-generated character sheets so that congoers can drop right in and start playing. Take that character that's been living in your mind Go to facebook.com slash gamersgiving and chat with the folks there about how you can submit it to the library. Thank you so much for your support.
As it's the beginning of the new year, I've seen a lot of people posting about their plans or goals or dreams for gaming or storytelling in the coming year, or things they want to do professionally. I've been doing the same thing. I love my job, but deep down I do wish that I were doing more digital design work related to gaming and storytelling. My deep desire and dream is to be doing more native app design work. One thing I've always been fascinated by is the idea of creating digital tools to help people make their face-to-face -face gaming better. Something like Roll20 is great for playing online, but when you do have a chance to be at the table with other people, I like the idea of utilities to help make that as smooth as possible or to increase the power of what you can do. So I've been thinking about one new such thing that I wish existed. Today I'm going to put on my product design hat and invite you to think through with me how this might look. Feel free to steal this. I want this to exist in the world. So if you have the means and the desire, please go ahead and make it. Just, you know, credit this podcast and let me know so that I can use it. Or even better, if you have the development chops but not a user experience and product designer, bring me along for the ride and we'll make it together. Here's what I want to pitch at all of you tonight. It is a walking simulator simulator. If you're not familiar with the term, it was originally a pejorative term, I think, used by quote-unquote hardcore gamers to refer to a game that didn't have any serious action or, you know, twitchy combat or was not massively multiplayer online, but was often a simple, quiet game, very much about atmosphere, usually one player, not a party of players, walking around, exploring a space, and unveiling usually a mystery or a story as they go. Here's where this all started. There was a lovely little game in 2013 released by the Fulbright Company called Gone Home. It's been on my list for literally half a decade, but I haven't gotten around to playing it until just these last few weeks. It just came out for iOS, and I was able to play through it recently in bits and pieces and middles of nights on my iPhone, and I adored it. As soon as I was finished, what I immediately wanted to do was to share it with lots of my friends and my family. The thing is, Lots of my friends and my family would never sit at a computer and play a game, but they might be convinced to come over to my house, join me in my living room, have a glass of wine and some hors d'oeuvres, and hang out and have a storytelling experience for an evening. So, enter Perambulation. That's the code name that I'm giving to this project. I want to take the walking simulator, which is intended to simulate an experience you could have in the real world, and bring it through the digital ether and back around to the real world again. I want to be able to take a story from a walking simulator and give it to my friends in the form of a dinner party. So imagine that you walk into my living room. I pour you a glass of wine. You and some friends are there on my couch. I just have an iPad. No one else needs anything except maybe a pad of paper to take notes for themselves. I start telling you a story. As I begin speaking, an image appears along with rising music on the television screen. There's a house surrounded by dense and kind of ominous Pacific Northwest foliage, rain beating down on the roof and on the window panes, strange creakings and grumblings in the background, the moon rising full behind the highest gable of the house. And there in the second floor window, a single light lit. As I'm talking about this, the lights in the room turn blue and low, except for one behind the television that flickers like a small lamp or a candle. A crack of thunder. One light strobes, timed with the sound effects. As you enter the house, a map appears on the screen. 
I'm scribbling something on my iPad and I'm looking at a totally different interface. I can paint away the fog of war over the map with my pencil as you're exploring. I can see notes about important things to tell you about or even pre-written scripted sequences. I can see which inventory items you've discovered or not. But all you see is the map. And then you discover an item, let's say a Christmas duck in the mudroom. You'd know if you'd played the game. I can mash a button, hand my iPad to you, and you and the other players can view the duck in all angles, make notes, make comments, hand it back to me. We continue on. Those bits of media throughout the evening might be short video clips or images. They might be paper handouts, things that I've printed or fashioned to hand out at given moments when you found them. Music and audio can be fed into the speaker system in my house. I should add, too, that it's not necessary to have any kind of projection or TV or fancy lights or sound. I could have this app on my phone on a bus trip while we all travel. These are all things that are utterly, imminently possible with the technology we have right now. And the really nice thing is how lightweight this is. In this particular case, not that you couldn't add them, there's no dice needed or character sheets or a long creation session. It's just me with my iPad and you sitting on the couch experiencing this kind of rich moment and being immersed in the story. But ideally, this technology wouldn't be distracting, only serving to support my words and our connection and the story that I'm telling. So I love the idea of human gathering with rich digital background in support. This is the kind of experience I want to create. Let's talk product design for a minute. Product design is always about limitations and having a clear vision for your end goal and what you want to do. But that also means deciding what you don't want to do. It always starts with constraints. What are the constraints on something like this? Walking simulators tend to only have one person in the quote-unquote party. They tend to not have a lot of combat. There may be interactions, but they're not twitchy reactions. They're cerebral or thoughtful interactions, or interactions that are based on items you have in your inventory or clues that you've discovered. I think I like the idea of a walking simulator because in its nature it keeps as simple and clean and unencumbered as possible. The kind of thing that I could invite my parents over and even if they weren't quite sure what they were getting into, they could settle into it and enjoy it pretty quickly. Because the focus is not the app, the focus is the story that we're telling and the app just plays a supporting role. The app itself isn't going to, in this case, be keeping track of initiative or hit points or anything about particular characters. It's intended to treat all the people in the room as one player collaboratively working together to inhabit this imaginary place and exploring story. And I think it can stay about as simple as that. For tonight, I'm going to talk about this as though it's an app that exists for iOS on my iPad. Although you could make this as a website or design the interface in something like Unity or another cross-platform tool, this is not actually a game. It really is a productivity app. And as such, in the moment of telling the story, you want everything to be as smooth and fluid as possible. You want the interface to be comfortable and reliable. And I think the best way to do that is to stick with the native conventions of the particular uh, operating system that you're using. So if I had the means, I would design a custom version of this app for iOS and a custom version for Android. But for tonight, I'm gonna pretend it's an iPad app developed natively for iOS and using native platform conventions. Let's talk for a minute about technology and features. What would a walking simulator simulator need? I think the centerpiece would be a fog of war map. Imagine taking Gone Home or a game similar to it 
exporting the maps from that game, just as images, and in real time, in play, uncover either one room at a time, or let's say I'm using an Apple Pencil, shade in areas as players wander around, exposing different parts of the room to them. I think it's important to be able to break that map up into regions. In a map of a house, that might be rooms. It's important to have blocks like doorways or walls or rivers, things that are not able to be crossed unless you find a solution for them. It would be nice to have layers that can be shown progressively over time on the map. Gone home, not to spoil a five-year-old game, but there are secret passages that can be discovered. And when you discover their existence, they appear on the map and you can then see where they are as a reminder to go back and visit them. Of course, any map is gonna be filled with objects. I think to each object, you could have the option to attach media. This might be just a text description. It could be an image or a sound, a movie could be a 3D model, or even something that can be viewed in AR, so that once you've discovered something, I can hand my iPad to you, and you can move it around in all dimensions and explore the object as though it were a real object sitting in our midst. I think objects need to have states, maybe saying this light was turned on, this light was turned off, this object is something you can pick up and carry with you in your inventory, this object was left open or closed the last time the players looked at it. It doesn't have to be defined quite to the same detail as in a computer game, because a lot of this is narrative. But anything that is important to the story, you can make a little note and then continue on, and if the players return back to that room and the state matters, it'll provide some important context. And then finally, an inventory, being able to keep track of which objects have been carried. I like the idea that objects in your inventory might have multiple states, so that, for instance, as you explore an object further, you might discover more things about them over time, or perhaps combine two objects together to create a new object. This is not a skill check heavy kind of situation, but I do like the idea of, for each clue, being able to assign what I'm calling a discovery level. This would be a little bit more like the gumshoe system from Pelgrane Press, where you would be deciding ahead of time which clues are essential for the story, and obviously those have to be discovered or else the story won't continue. But you may have some extra things that are not necessarily obvious, and it's okay if the players don't find, but if they do find, it will help reinforce the ideas that they've had about the stories that are coming together. And then in real time, depending on whether players are examining a corner of the room with intensity, or whether you just think it would make the story more interesting, you can choose to unveil that clue and choose who to unveil it to. And then the last piece really, I think, is triggers, a scripting system where you can say, if this bit of fog gets cleared away, or this line is crossed, or this room is entered, or if this action is taken, or this object is currently in your inventory at the time this other thing happens, then a door is revealed, media is displayed, a map is updated, a layer is shown, a note is logged, etc. As you walk around in Gone Home, you're overhearing an audio diary of your little sister as she's telling about her experiences. To be able to have that play automatically as soon as players walk into a room or to show an image or cue audio or lighting cues at various points in the game. That basic kind of scripting would allow for some really interesting interactivity. I'll close by just talking about some of the kinds of things you could do with a game like this. You could take an old text adventure like Zork and without any graphics or images at all, turn the lights down low and have a progressive story that cues the GM to read text and offer choices at various points. 
You could take an old beloved game like Myst, a walking simulator where you are alone on an island trying to figure out the mystery of why there's no one else there and what has happened. That game played a huge role in forming my understanding of the world, my love for storytelling, my love for technology. I could even see telling a story like Oregon Trail, where you're moving across a map of the entire United States, viewing monuments and encountering challenges as you go. I could see this being a puzzle box or escape room sort of situation, where at a certain point in the mystery, you bring out a physical puzzle or something you've prepared, and then when a challenge is passed in physical form, you mark it in the app and move the story forward. Gone Home is filled with letters and documents and receipts and physical pieces of paper that have clues on them. I would love to print those out ahead of time and at a particular moment in the story, produce a new handout and pass it around to the players. If you wanted to, you could also use this as a backdrop to play something more rich like Dungeons and Dragons or Numenera. Just images tied with the map of a particular location, unveiling pieces as you go and using the map as a reminder to yourself about what kinds of things to talk to your players about. And then you can handle all the combat and skill mechanics separately outside of the app. The final aspect of product design that's super important, which I sort of intentionally did not talk too much about tonight, is the business model. For anything like this, it's really important to think about how you're going to be able to make a product that is fair and reasonably priced, but also sustainable so that you can continue making it in the future. I have some ideas about what you could do here, but I won't talk about them specifically if you want to talk to me about those, you'll have to talk to me about partnership. <laughs> but I do think there's some really interesting and good ways that you could monetize this. What I will say is I think it would be so much fun to be able to make a community where people can make their own modular content for this and have a community store where people can purchase these things from each other and keep the community going that way. I also like the idea that you could license some content if you know Fulbright wanted to provide a module that allowed Gone Home to be played just ready to go. That's a story that I could return to again and again and keep telling, kind of like those old how to host a murder parties from the 80s. As more and more players become familiar with gaming and storytelling as a reasonable thing to do with friends on an evening, I think there's a lot of opportunity for something like this. I think far too often digital games and computer games have been separated from tabletop experiences. And what I don't hope for is a game where people have finally managed to all get together in the same room and they're all sitting around looking at their devices. But I do think that computers are great at doing certain things. And if that can make an existing game easier to run and manage some of the things going on in the background or enable new features or abilities that wouldn't be possible without the technology, uh, I think that those are a great way to support the human connection that you have while you're sitting in the room with some of your beloved. I will say that this all sprang from a Twitter thread that I posted on my main account. I'm going to add links to that thread and to some of the specific comments from it in the show notes, but I received wonderful tips from many, many folks offering suggestions about existing games or products or means of storytelling that might feed inspiration for this kind of thing. And so check the show notes out and explore if you like this kind of idea. So thanks for your time. And if you have specific ideas about how this might work, or if you are interested in working on something like this with me, please let me know. Thank you so much. I will see you all soon in a digital or physical living room somewhere. Good night. Last call for Shadow Comestibles. I'd like to close tonight by sincerely thanking those of you who've left thoughtful reviews of The Secret Cellar on iTunes. 
Here's one from Gibbergeist1138 that just made my heart sing. They say, fantastic discussions of story. Such a fantastic and evocative way to use the setting of Invisible Sun as a springboard to discuss ideas about storytelling. Less about rules and more about the feelings, thoughts, and philosophies that the game works to capture and inspire. Has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts and a favorite hangout in the city of Saturine. If you appreciate the work I'm doing on this show, please do take a moment and leave a review. 2018 was about experimenting with the medium, trying to find out if I even liked a podcast. Turns out I do. In 2019, I'm going to focus on maturing it, with a more regular schedule and some improvements to quality, and starting to promote the show a little. Reviews are one way for me to start building that momentum. Also write me, meet.me at zeros.bar, if you'd like to advertise. I love promoting other creative works, especially. If you've got a friend with a podcast, or a Kickstarter, or a band, or a book, consider buying them an ad. The audience of this show is, as you might guess, a peculiar blend of smart, nerdy, and delightful. Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monticook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. Mm-hmm.